Hi, this is Hannah Langdell and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery Lecture Series. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We'd like to thank Allergan for their support of this podcast. Today will be the first part of a two-part series discussing different techniques in body contouring surgery. In the first part of the series, we'll be discussing liposuction and abdominoplasty. Our guest host is Dr. Kristen Ruzak, a microsurgeon here at Duke University Hospital who specializes in breast reconstruction and transgender surgery. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. We'll start with liposuction. So in terms of anatomy, there are several different layers of subcutaneous fat, which become important when discussing liposuction. There's the superficial layer, the intermediate layer, and the deep layer. So the superficial layer contains dense fat adherent to the overlying skin. This region is usually avoided to prevent contour irregularities. The next layer is the intermediate layer, and this is the safest layer to perform liposuction. The deep layer is loose and contains compact fat that can be removed safely in most areas except the buttocks. The next concept is zones of adherence, which is important to remember as violation during liposuction causes contour irregularities. And Dr. Rizak, what are some of the areas that you typically avoid when performing liposuction? So some of the areas that I, I prefer to do, say if I'm harvesting for fat grafting, are like the thicker areas that um, that hide the contour irregularities re- really well, like the uh, lower abdomen and the pouch area, the inner thighs, the love handles. Some of the areas that show contours a little bit more and are not uh, as unforgiving are such as like the outer thighs. So I try to avoid that area. Yeah, and so those those ones can really show uh, significant contour de- uh, deformities. Great. So we'll briefly next review wetting solutions. These are frequently tested on in-service exams. These include dry, wet, super wet, and methane. So dry liposuction does not offer any infiltrate and will generally have greater blood loss of up to 50%. Wet provides 200 to 300 cc's of infiltrate regardless of what is removed and carries about a 3 to 10% blood loss of total infiltrate. Superwet is a one-to-one ratio of infiltrate to amount of aspirate and carries about a 1% blood loss rate. And then tumescent is two to three to 1% infiltrate to aspirate ratio and results in less than 1% blood loss. And then in general, wetting solutions provide volume replacement, hemostasis, and pain control, and typically include LR, lidocaine, and epinephrine. The infiltration provides up to 18 hours of analgesia, and the maximum dose of lidocaine is 35 milligrams per kilogram, resulting in peak levels at 12 hours post-op. And the ability to provide higher amounts of lidocaine without toxicity is due to the diluted solution, slow infiltration, high solubility, and relative vasoconstrictive effect of epinephrine. Now, in terms of indications for liposuction, these include lipodystrophy, made lungs, lymphedema, and the setting of body contouring. Uh, so, Dr. Rizak, when you're counseling patients preoperatively, what do you tell them in terms of expectations and postoperative course? So, uh, first, when I'm evaluating a patient, I want to make sure that they know that this is not for weight loss. That's a um, that's something that a lot of patients just you know don't know. They just think, oh, I'm going to lose a lot of weight. We're going to do it with liposuction. Yeah. Um, it's for it's for small targeted areas. 
and to also an adjunct uh, for surgery, such as uh, a tummy tuck when you're doing your abdominal plasty or thigh lift. And so that's one thing I, I like to convey with the patients. Then we evaluate them to make sure that they do have significant amount of adiposity that they, you know, we can at least uh, evacuate with a liposuction. Uh, so that's one thing. And also another important thing for liposuction is also you have to ask about prior surgeries and prior liposuction. One thing that patients tend to forget is they, you know, liposuction is surgery, right? So they forget that they've had to, to mention that as a surgical procedure. And another thing you have to mention is that the newer um, things out there is the cool sculpting and things like that can affect liposuction results. So you have to ask about that too as well. Um, so those are a lot of the preoperative stuff that I'll review with the patient. Great. Yeah, no, that's definitely important to take into consideration. I would not have even thought of cool sculpting to really ask. Yeah. And Dr. Rezek, do you have in your practice a BMI cutoff for liposuction? It just depends on the patient. It depends on the patient. A lot of my cosmetic patients, I like to have a BMI uh, below 32. And so I think that's a good guideline, but it's also setting expectations of what they're realistically are, they want to achieve and what they're going to look like. And so anything over that, um, they tend to be a little disappointed in their results. So you just have to be, you know, you have to be careful um, if you're going to do it on a higher BMI. And then I know there's a lot of surgeons out there that will perform pretty high volume liposuction. Do you have a comfortable volume that you're okay with uh, removing in like one session, for example? I don't. Um, I've done high volume liposuction. You, you do have to be careful. There are rules and regulations of how much you can perform in a clinic setting, like outpatient clinic setting versus an uh, overnight hospital uh, or surgery center, partly because of the fluid shifts, right? So if I feel that it's gonna, I'm going to be doing a little high volume, I just, I'm safe about it and we'll place it in an overnight surgery center for fluid replacements and things like that. Gotcha. So um, next we're going to talk about the different types of liposuction techniques. The first is ultrasound-assisted liposuction, which essentially emulsifies subcutaneous fat by three processes. Uh, micro-mechanical, which is essentially direct trauma by ultrasonic wave, thermal, and cavitation, which is another word for tissue fragmentation. Suction lipectomy is then used for um, evacuation. Complications of this technique include the risk of thermal injury, seroma, neuropraxia, and hyperpigmentation. I don't have much experience with ultrasound-assisted liposuction. Is that something you've ever used, Dr. Rezac? I have, and it's a, it's a nice adjunct to have, uh, especially when you're using uh, for certain types of patients. I like to use it for the, if you have a patient who has a buffalo hump, that, uh, that very fibrous, fatty deposits are very difficult to uh, get with manual liposuction. That ultrasonic liposuction really breaks that up. You know, it's uh, kind of comastia uh, liposuction I use that for as well, too. So that's really, you know, fibrous fat. And that's, those are the key um, areas that I tend to really rely on that ultrasonic liposuction for. You do have to be careful, though, uh, with your port sites. They do tend to uh, have a little bit more thermal heat that can burn that those port sites. So you have to protect them. Gotcha. The next type of liposuction, which we use pretty commonly at Duke and I imagine elsewhere, is the power-assisted liposuction, which involves infiltration and evacuation with an externally powered oscillating cannula. And this technique generally enables aspirations of uh, larger volumes of fat as compared to traditional kind of manual um, liposuction. And then finally, in laser-assisted liposuction, uh, the mechanism of action 
includes disrupting fat cell membranes and emulsifying the fat. Um, the heating of subdermal tissue is thought to be the main factor for the skin tightening effect that's sort of marketed as the kind of key benefit of the laser-assisted liposuction. The technique is known to have a decrease in postoperative pain, at least that's what's reported in the literature. I, again, don't have too much experience as a resident with laser-assisted liposuction. I don't know if you do, Dr. Rezac, but I've never yeah. Yeah, both are both are really good. I've used I use the power assisted a lot. I I like power assisted uh, for fat, fat grafting harvesting. Uh, you do have to be a little bit careful with contour deformities that it is easier to get um, with uh, power assisted than manual. But the uh, the another thing also some people don't realize that if you do a lot of uh, power assisted liposuction, the actual vibrations can actually cause some uh, um, nerve neuropraxia on the hand, <laughs> so you have to be a little bit careful not to get some carpal tunnel. The, <laughs> the, which uh, experience doing a uh, body contouring fellowship. Um, so <laughs> that's one thing to consider. But uh, the laser liposuctions are really good for outpatients, cosmetics. Um, there's less. Uh, I think it's a, like a less trauma to the body, and that causes a less bruising, and so you can get a pretty much the same result with uh, less pain. All right, so we'll end our liposuction discussion now with a few safety considerations. We spoke a little bit about lidocaine, and if there is local anesthetic toxicity suspected, then infusion of 20% lipid emulsion should occur. And then uh, with large volume liposuction, we mentioned that it should be performed at the appropriate healthcare facility without simultaneous procedures, and it should include overnight monitoring with IV fluids. Instruction lysectomy rarely transects vessels, but can cause neuropraxia, and it's best to just observe this for several months. PE is the most common cause of death in suction lysectomy, and contour deformity is the most common complication. So I think that is, wraps up our discussion for liposuction, and this will transition well into abdominoplasty. So just to briefly review the anatomy of the abdominal wall, comprised of skin, subcutaneous fat, scarpous fascia, subscarpal fat, external and internal oblique, transversus abdominis, transversalis fascia, extraperitoneal fat, and the parietal peritoneum. So as a review, above the arcuate line, there is an anterior and posterior rectus sheath consisting of fascial contributions from the external and internal oblique for the anterior rectus sheath and the internal oblique and transversus abdominis for the posterior rectus sheath. And below the arcuate line, these contributions form an anterior rectus sheath only with no posterior rectus sheath. Next, we'll discuss the blood supply of the abdomen, and it's separated by zones. So zone one consists of the superior and inferior epigastric system, zone two, the circumflex iliac and external pudendal systems, and zone three, the intercostals and external pudendal system. So zone one is primarily mid-abdomen overlying the rectus. Zone two is between the ASIS and the inguinal crease, and zone three is lateral and superior to zone two. Uh, there are several nerves to be aware of in abdominoplasty. The lateral femoral cutaneous nerve innervates the skin of the lateral aspect of the thigh and emerges close to the ASIS. And this can be inadvertently injured during abdominoplasty, uh, and this is prevented by leaving a layer of fat over the ASIS. And then this is commonly tested in the in-service. The innervation to the muscles comes from T7 to T12 and travels between the internal oblique and transversus abdominis. The umbilicus is important in abdominoplasty for both location and shape. It's typically located near the level of the iliac crest in the midline, 
and pleasing characteristics include a shallow umbilicus that has superior hooding, inferior retraction, and a round shape. And the blood supply is important to maintain and includes the subdermal plexus, inferior epigastric, the ligamentum teres, and the median umbilical ligament. Now that we've gone through all of that, Dr. Rizak, uh, when you're seeing a patient for an abdominoplasty evaluation, what are some of the most important components of the history and physical to be aware of uh, before surgery? So if I'm evaluating for abdominoplasty, one, again, we discuss just reviewing their history and physical, so um, what, what their expectations are, you know, one, we want to know, two, also pregnancies, when their last pregnancy was to make sure it was out far enough, C-sections, any other additional surgeries, and then also um, playing into prior surgeries such as liposuction and, like, cool sculpting. You need to ask all, about all that because that can actually interfere with your, your uh, results as well, too. Um, then we go over physical about, you know, where the prior scars are, what their BMI is, and those are the main targeted areas that I'll talk about during their history and physical for, for abdominoplasty. So now we'll discuss some of the different procedures, and these depend on the amount, location, and direction of skin laxity. Uh, the three most common types of abdominoplasty are the traditional abdominoplasty, the mini abdominoplasty, and flirtily abdominoplasty. Uh, Dr. Rizak, can you explain a little bit how you decide which procedure is appropriate based on your exam? Sure. The So um, the... Traditional abdominoplasty uh, is the one that most everybody does nowadays, and usually uh, for somebody who hasn't lost a significant amount of weight and just maybe is just uh, postpartum, has that loose abdominal skin, this is a good, you know, traditional surgery for them. The lipo, the, um, there's a couple other ones that I, I do. The fleur de lis, uh, which is where you have the, um, your incision goes across the transverse as well as uh, vertically up the midline uh, to really get rid of that horizontal skin laxity as well. That one I usually do more for patients who've had a, a significant amount of a weight loss, so those massive weight loss patients. No matter how much you pull in that uh, up and down direction, you're not going to get that tummy flat uh, when they have that loose abdominal skin. So you really need to take out that vertical component if you really want to get a flat for the, the massive weight loss. Um, and I also do it, uh, the uh, lipo abdominoplasty technique, which is uh, Dr. Saldana's uh, technique, which is basically a uh, limited undermining. And you liposuction basically the lower abdominal area as well as the upper costal margins, and you're only undermining in the midline. Uh, and I, I like that one for the lower BMIs, um, and it can get a really good result for just like a, just a nice aesthetic result for those patients who really haven't had a lot of weight loss. What would be like a good candidate for uh, mini abdominoplasty? So uh, mini abdominoplasty is uh, you see those patients who you really have to look at the entire abdomen, costal margins down to the pubic bone. And so if they have a really good upper, abdom uh, upper abdominal contour with no skin excess, uh, no rectus diastasis, and uh, their umbilicus is, you know, not uh, folding over on itself due to skin excess, and they just have a lower abdominal pouch, basically, a little skin excess below the umbilicus. Those are the candidates uh, that are, are good for those mini abdominoplasty, which is basically, you know, lower, lower skin excision. You can do lower uh, rectus plications on those patients as well, too, um, but really no tra umbilical transposition. Right. I know you can move the umbilicus. Is it just a couple centimeters down without it looking too strange? But 
other than that, you kind of have to transpose it, right? You can, but also what you, you can do is called floating it. So basically you detach it. Um, so it's, you know, it's free from the underlying rectus fascia. You're pulling down as much as you want. Um, you could actually make a nick into the, um, the umbilicus and, and, and tack it down that way or underneath um, and to tack it back down. So that's called floating the umbilicus. Gotcha. Great. We'll go over a few complications. So in general, uh, the complication rate can be as high as 34%. And wound healing complications alone account for about 14% of the complications, and not surprisingly, it can increase to 50% in smokers. The infra-umbilical and supra-umbilical abdomen have the highest incidence of wound healing issues. Other risks include malposition or death of the umbilicus, seroma, uh, which is the most common complication of abdominoplasty when performed alone, uh, venothromboembolism, and infection. Current guidelines for VT prophylaxis include chemical prophylaxis for those with a Caprini score greater than 7. Lovenox should be given 6 to 8 hours after the procedure and for the duration of the hospital stay. VT risk during abdominoplasty is 8%. The current surgical care improvement project guidelines recommend no shaving, no use of razors, IV antibiotics prior to incision, postoperative antibiotics for 24 hours, no elective surgery the hemoglobin H1C is greater than 7, and prevention of intraoperative hypothermia. Do you have any sort of restrictions regarding smokers or uh, diabetics? I do. So I also agree with the H1, yeah, hemoglobin H1C below 7 uh, to make sure that they are uh, take glycemic control. Also smokers, we, uh, one thing I have added on to my my questions when I'm asking the patients because I before on my HMPs I just said you know do you smoke yes or no, uh, but apparently people who vape don't cause don't don't believe that smoking so vaping uh, is another question you know you have to ask about that that has nicotine yeah. in it as well as uh, nicotine patches and gums uh, those are uh, also need to ask about those particularly if they're patients who are uh, trying to quit but just can't get off the nicotine so that's something just important to know. Uh, because of the fact that I, you know, I found out that patients were not telling me that they were vaping um, and their nicotine test was positive. I do, on smokers who uh, want to quit, I do get a nicotine test uh, as well to make sure the cotinin, the, urine, the uh, nicotine, um, the breakdown cotinin is uh, out of their system. And so that's something I, I also do as well. The uh, one thing for the, DV, the DVT prophylaxis, you know, there's obviously with a high Caprini score, you're going to be careful about, you know, postoperative uh, prophylaxis with Lovenox and things like that. But also, uh, we did find benefit in some of our lower body lists of sending them home with a Lovenox lunchbox, basically, um, once a day uh, prophylaxis. And there's studies about that as well. You know, some doctors will, you know, some surgeons will do it for just a downplasty. You know, it just depends on, um, you know, multifactorial with these patients. So you have to really outweigh the risks and the benefits versus hematoma versus, you know, really preventing a blood, blood clot. Yep. Well, uh, as an elder millennial over here, I have no idea what to <laughs> but maybe hand stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, I was educated a lot by my patients. They would bring them in. <laughs> Oh, you know what we could talk about? We could talk about uh, progressive tension sutures and use of drinks. Yes. That's kind of a hot topic right now. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Rizek? So um, I've done both. I've, I've used drains and I've done the drainless surgeries. Honestly, I've had seromas with both. So 
I found that you have to be careful with progressive tension sutures. When I, I do those a lot for, uh, I like my the progressive tension sutures for lateral silus. So when I'm doing my lateral silus, um, it really kind of supports it, decreases the dead space. You have to be careful with the tummy tuck. So when you're doing your abdominoplasty and you're doing progressive tension sutures, there's a lot of hand-holding because what happens is that the uh, skin now adheres to where those sutures are, right? So when the patient stands up or sits down, they may have some, uh, they're like contour deformities. You're going to see some, you know, dimpling basically of kind of where those sutures are if you if you uh, you have to put them in, a, you know, in rows. But there's a lot of hand-holding until those scar down. And so that's something just to educate your patients about. But they do work. Uh, and I've really gotten away with having to use drains. It's, um, I like to do those for the mini abdominoplasties and um, like the the ones I'm just are not high BMI patients. The ones that have a higher BMI, like around the 30s, 30 to 32, I, I prefer to use the trains. Gotcha. And then when you do that, do you just grab scarpus fascia essentially and tack it down to like the abdominal wall fascia? Correct. And uh, but the key is is just not to do it sporadically. You really have to kind of you really work in your way down, you know, from superior to inferior and go in in, in rows uh, to really make that work. And then what kind of suture do you use for that? I like a PDF. So I'm using a, an old PDF or two old PDFs. Okay, so something that goes away, but not for a while. Correct. I don't like using permanent sutures at all. I don't, okay. I don't use permanent sutures at all, even for my rectus plication. Um, I use a, the OVLOC 180 barb sutures, basically the same kind of suture I use for my, my deep flat closures. So it's a running you know, baseball stitch one way and a, imbricating it with a running mattress the other way, and, I, and it gives a good, good closure without having a permanent suture. I, I love that closure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If it's a podcast, it should be that. It's a, it's a great suture to have. The barbs, the, um, you know, large barb sutures are wonderful uh, for that, and that's that's one thing I've learned um, that I transitioned from instead of using, like, the epidons or something like that. And then do you do any trimming of, like, the subscarpus fat? I've done some reading about that technique. I've not done it myself. But, I mean, what you read is that you can kind of safely trim the subscarpus fat without compromising the blood supply to the skin. And in doing so, you can kind of, like, debulk that abdominal mm-hmm. flap. Do you yeah. do that? think it works or um, if I feel that they need debulking I will add liposuction okay. you know I the only time I really debulk that subscarpus fat is if I'm when I'm I, I'll do it around the um, like the neo umbilicus and so I really like to reform that contour or also like the midline like your mid uh, the, mid, the midline rafe like you're, you're trying to you know recreate that and I may take a little bit of that out there but it's very very minimal Otherwise, you could compromise the, uh, you know, the, the blood flow to the flap. You just kind of do it in the midline, target it. Yeah. It makes yeah. it look a little bit more. Um, Correct. It's just targeted contouring just to make aesthetically pleasing. If I, if you really have to be bolded, I prefer just the liposuction. All right. Well, I think Hannah has just a couple questions that she wants to go over from old in-service, and then this is your chance, Dr. Rezac, to uh, tell us if you think the questions are silly or not. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the first one is, which of the following procedures has the greatest risk of potential venous thromboembolism? A, abdominoplasty, B, bilateral reduction mammoplasty, C, implant-based calf augmentation, or D, liposuction of the trunk? All right, Chief Resident, oh, what do you think? Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> considering this is an abdominoplasty talk, it's <laughs> abdominoplasty, although in my vast experience, 
placing cat implants as a resident at a reconstructive heavy hospital. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't really know. About that. <laughs> but, yes, abdominal it comes up a lot in some of the questions, so important to remember. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair, that's a fair question. Agree that I've, uh, I have to say I've never done cat implants. I have done gluteal implants and pec implants, but cat is the only one I have not done. <laughs> so. Well, we should be able to get this next one. We just talked about this. So, which of the following measures reduces the risk for the most common complication in abdominoplasty? A, administration of preoperative IV antibiotics within one hour of incision. B, attention to offloading pressure points and keeping upper extremities in neutral position. C, discontinuation of NSAIDs and herbal supplements four weeks before surgery. D, use of pneumatic compression devices before the induction of general anesthesia. Or E, use of progressive tension sutures and drain placement. We've spoken a little bit about this and how it's controversial, but the correct answer is E. The seroma is the most common complication following abdominoplasty, and progressive tension sutures and drains have been shown to be effective in preventing this complication. But I don't know. What do you think, Dr. Rizek? You know, it's, it's reasonable. That's a reasonable question. I mean, I, I, again, seromas is one of the higher complication rates for these, and so anything you can do, even with the seromas, with the drains, is, is reasonable, you know, doing the, uh, sorry, either progressive tension sutures with the drains to prevent the seromas. It's yep. just a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. Last question. A 32-year-old woman is interested in post-pregnancy body contouring. BMI is 34. When combined with abdominoplasty, liposuction of which of the following areas has an increased risk for wound healing complications? Is it A, the flank, B, lateral hip, C, lateral thigh, D, mons pubis, or E, supra umbilical abdomen? What do you think? Um, I would go with supra umbilical abdomen. Um, and then for bonus points, Hannah, do you remember what zone of the abdomen this is? <laughs> Zone one. Yep. You got it. Nice. Very nice. Yeah. yeah. So um, you see it. I, I don't know if you've, you've seen, like, the advertisements, obviously, on your friends who are graduated do Instagram and all those other things with 360 lipo. Mm-hmm. You know, that's their, that's their, you know, the new marketing strategy. Um, and that's one thing you do have to be careful of. And, and there are some surgeons who abandon doing this, you know, the upper abdominal flaps at all. They won't do them and just do lateral flanks and back. So you got to be careful with that because I, you know, I have had some uh, wound issues with doing that upper abdominal flap. So, so you got to be selective. Recommend for like a, a new surgeon graduating, like in a board selection period, would you recommend yeah. doing it staged if you're going to do it? Either, either staged or just stick with the lateral flanks and, you know, just for like, you know, they have that you're trying to get rid of the little buckling of fat that, you know, can happen around the outside of the edge of the incision, you know, mm-hmm. targeted areas, those are fine. But mm-hmm. if you really need a liposuction, that upper abdominal flap, you may want to do it staged, you know, just at least initially until you get comfortable doing the, the abdominal plasty with the liposuction. Yeah, everyone wants that snatched abdomen. Yeah, yes, yeah. they do. And so, you know, you see it all over the Internet. And so, uh, but I think you can be more aggressive if you do it staged. Too, you know, so and you're really decreasing those complications. So you can technically do it together, obviously, but you got to be careful initially when you start out. I agree. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know as a junior resident, I have learned a lot by uh, you know going through these topics. So thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. I learn a lot as a chief resident every day. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Rizak. Thank you. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. See you guys.